Good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be with you. I've uh, been thinking several things throughout this service, so I'm going to get them out of the way at the beginning, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll begin. Number one, uh, I just want to say a word of thanks. I know that you heard it from uh, Jared and Cindy, and you heard it from Gordon. I wanted you to hear it from me. Thank you so much for all of the effort and all of the energy and all of the prayers that went into Vacation Bible School, and uh, we pray that the Lord has, uh, it has and will continue to richly reward you as you've served Him in the power of the Spirit. And I want you to know that your service and your prayers have already and will continue to bear much fruit. So thank you very, very much. With that in mind, if you're exhausted like I am, take a good nap this afternoon and take next Wednesday off. You'll hear more about that at the end of the service. Uh, secondly, I uh, just wanted to make mention of this uh, just because they're special to me. I have pretty much my entire family here today. <laughs> my mom and my dad, my sister and my brother-in-law and their kids, as my, uh, my kids were excited because cousins are here today. And uh, so if you would greet them after the service, I would appreciate it. Our good friends Joe and Sharon Hoffman have traveled down from Eldon. We're glad to have them as well. If you would open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to conclude 5 and enter into Galatians chapter 6 this morning. I want to read the passage. We'll pray one final time and then we will break it apart this morning. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Our God and our Father, we ask you now to come and to help. To take this word which is our daily bread and to feed us. To nourish our souls by the power of the Spirit. All who are gathered today, your church, your people, those who are called by your name, who have been called out of darkness and into your light, have been awakened by sovereign grace into faith and new life in Christ. They have been called, as the Bible says, with a holy calling. Lord, you have called us to be a holy people. Which means nothing else than to be a loving people. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. So you love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. For the whole law is summarized in this statement. That you shall love one another. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. To be holy is to keep the law. And to keep the law is to love in the power of the Spirit through grace by faith in the Gospel. So Lord, I pray that today over the next 
half hour, 45 minutes, I pray that you would speak to us about love and produce the fruit of the Spirit that is love within our hearts and that we would be a loving and thereby a holy people. That the world would stop and marvel and say they must be disciples of Jesus. Would you do this in our midst this morning, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and in His name. Amen. For the first 300 years of the New Testament church, believers live their faith beneath the constant shadow and threat of persecution, keenly aware that at some future date the distinct possibility existed that they would be faced with that terrible choice between death and apostasy either denying their faith or dying for their faith. And this threat of persecution helped keep the the gate small and the way narrow that leads to life. See, one had to count the costs before entering into the fold of the church. But with the conversion of Constantine, the emperor of the of Rome in AD 312 and the so-called Christianization of the Roman Empire that followed, the church emerged from, within, from beneath this shadow and this threat and life in the church changed dramatically. Church historian Justo Gonzalez writes this, he says, quote, the narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide that countless multitudes were hurrying past it, some seemingly after privilege and position without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. Bishops competed with one another after prestigious positions. The rich and the powerful seemed to dominate the life of the church. The tares were growing so rapidly that they threatened to choke out the wheat. How was one to be a true Christian in such circumstances? When the church joins the powers of this world, when luxury and ostentation take hold of Christian altars, when the whole of society is intent on turning the narrow path into a wide avenue, how is one to resist the enormous temptations of the times? How is one to witness to the crucified Lord, to the one who had nowhere to lay his head, at a time when many leaders of the church lived in costly homes? And when the ultimate witness of martyrdom is no longer possible, end quote. Well, for many, the answer to those questions lay in fleeing to the desert to live the monastic life, to live the life of an isolated monk. There, alone, exposed to the heat by day and the cold by night, these holy hermits battled Satan and escaped the sins and the corruptions of the world. And one of the more interesting of these desert monks was a man named Simeon, who around the year 423 A.D. found among the ruins located on the edge of the Syrian desert a short pillar on which he constructed a small platform where he proceeded to live out the remaining 30 years of his life. And throughout the years, as the temptations of the flesh would go stronger, he would build his platform higher. Until eventually it reached in excess of 50 or 60 feet in the air on a a three by three platform on which he, he erected a rail that would keep him from falling off in his sleep. And the only connection between his holy perch and the earth below was a ladder on which some of his disciples would bring up 
some meager offerings of food every now and again. The early church considered these these desert monks to be holy men. They were the spiritual elite. If you wanted to be really spiritual, you would do as they did. Many of them were canonized by the church and became saints. But the question that I would pose to you is, is this what Paul means when he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh? Is this what Paul means in Romans 8.13 when he talks about putting to death the deeds of the body? Is this what it means to be spiritual? Is this what it means to be holy? Living as a monk, isolated and alone and feeding on crumbs? Well, the biblical answer is no. No, it is not. In fact, according to the Apostle Paul, that's the very opposite of what it means to be holy. It's the very antithesis of what it means to be spiritual. To be spiritual is not to lock oneself away in a closet somewhere seeking a private, mystical encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means to be spiritual. It's not to cloister yourself away in a monastery where you live on one meal a day and and take a leather strap and beat yourself night in and night out because of the impure thoughts that you've thought that day. That's not what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh. To be spiritual according to the scriptures, according to the Apostle Paul, is to bear spiritual fruit within the context of a new covenant community or what we call the church. Spiritual fruit grows for the benefit of other believers. Holiness is outward looking. It is others oriented. It is others focused. According to the the Apostle Paul, to walk by the Spirit means nothing else than to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. Love one another, guard one another, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The fruit of holiness, in other words, we've been talking a lot about fruit in the last few weeks. The fruit of holiness is grown in the garden of Christian community. It's grown in the church. This corporate, others-oriented nature of the fruit of the Spirit is evident in the way in which Paul proceeds after listing the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then he proceeds to explain how we do so. Verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Love is humble. It considers one another is more important than ourselves. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Love does not ignore a brother who has been ensnared in sin, but rather seeks to rescue him with compassion and with gentleness. Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Love seeks to be a burden lifter, sharing in one another's trials and tribulations and helping them overcome temptations. So to walk by the Spirit then means to walk in love, and love cannot exist in isolation. Love must have an object. Who are you going to love when you're up on a pole on the edge of the desert? Who are you going to consider as more important than yourself when you're all alone? 
Whose soul are you going to guard? Out in that wilderness church you dream of when you say, well, I don't have to be within the four walls to worship God. I can worship God just as well out here. If there's not other believers in the midst of you, no, beloved, you can't. All alone, who are you going to restore from sin? Whose soul will you be on guard for? Whose burdens will you bear? See, the spiritual life, the holy life, is not lived in the desert. It's not to be found in private, mystical experiences. Holiness is produced in the church as we share life with brothers and sisters in Christ. Sharing and serving one another with grace-wrought, faith-fueled, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered love that manifests itself in the sort of things we're going to talk about today. So this morning, I want to walk through our passage with the intent, with the the banner flying over this message saying, this is what it means to walk by the Spirit. This is what it means to love one another. This is what it means to be holy. I'm going to show you three things that Paul points out. Three ways in which we walk by the Spirit. Way number one, he says, walking by the Spirit means walking in love, and walking in love means walking in humility toward one another. So he says in verse 26, immediately following the command to walk by the Spirit, he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. See, love and pride coexist about as well as oil and water. A heart that is boastful simply cannot produce a love that does not brag that is not arrogant, that seeks not its own, as Paul says real love does in 1 Corinthians 13. And the word that Paul employs there at the beginning of the verse, the word that my Bible says is boastful, English Standard has conceited. It's a a colorful, compound Greek word, which literally means empty glory, vain glory. It refers to someone who thinks of themselves as possessing a certain degree of glory and honor, but they think wrongly. They don't have the glory that they think they possess. Their claims of honor is vanity. Now, there are people who, because of depression or abuse or some psychological malady, tend to hold a lower opinion of themselves than they ought to. They have an unhealthy self-image. They forget that they are a creation of God, created in His image, beloved of the Father, created for His glory. That's the problem with probably a smattering of you. You, you have an unhealthy self-image. But, I, but I'm willing to bet that the majority of you have the same problem that I have, which is that I have a rather inflated self-image. I tend to think more of myself than I ought to think. See, most of us possess a natural tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, considering ourselves to be the greatest thing since sliced bread and probably God's gift to the church. Well, the Bible calls this pride, and it says that God hates it. It is the enemy of love. It poisons every relationship that we have especially those within the church and the result according to Paul is that we either challenge one another or we envy one another I I like the way John Stott explains how these two words relate to one another and to the first word which is boastful he says that challenging or literally provoking calling one another out to a contest 
He says that challenging is the attempt to demonstrate one's superiority. Right? This word sort of gives the image of roosters strutting around the farmyard trying to show who's in charge of the hen house. Which, ironically, is also the very image I get of pastor's conferences and uh, annual convention meetings. We baptized 30 last year. How big is your church? My church isn't as big as mine. Is it, it's pretty much how it goes. On the other hand, envying arises from a feeling of inferiority and a, and a, a, a desperate sense of insecurity. It's that silent resentment towards those that you perceive to be more gifted and therefore more admired than you are. But I want you to notice that whether a challenging demeanor arising from feelings of superiority or, a, or an envying demeanor arising from feelings of inferiority, they both emerge from a heart of pride. That is, a heart that thinks of itself too much. A heart that is turned inward, that is self-focused. But the fruit of love can only grow in the garden of humility. And to borrow a uh, phrase from C.S. Lewis, true humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, nor thinking too little of yourself. True humility is not thinking much about yourself at all. Now again, I need to beat the drum that holiness is lived out in community with a shared life with other believers. To walk by the Spirit is to walk in love, and to walk in love is to walk in humility, and to walk in humility is to regard one another as more important than myself. So if I'm not sharing life with a body of believers in the context of local churches... How am I ever going to win the battle against pride, which is the besetting sin of the human race? If I'm, a, if I'm never part of the family, wherein sometimes other people's needs trump mine, and sometimes their honor trumps mine, and sometimes I'm going to have to go low in order to serve them, how am I ever going to put to death the sin of pride which has its chains wrapped around my heart so tight that I can hardly breathe? How will I ever cultivate humility? Who will I ever consider as more important than myself? Secondly, to walk by the Spirit means to walk in love and to walk in love means restoring one another when we fall into sin. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Sin is, is so destructive because it is so deceptive. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, I've been reading through the latter part of the Chronicles of Narnia lately and one of the ways in which Lewis describes sin in, in that series is by comparing it to being underneath an evil enchantment. The enchantment begins subtly, it begins deceptively, it, it, it lures the unsuspecting character in with false beauty and, and false promises until he is totally ensnared, unable to think clearly and completely under the control of the evil one. If you're a Narnia fan, think Prince Rillian from The Silver Chair. And once under the enchantment of sin, he is completely helpless to escape. He can't escape. He needs to be rescued. He needs to be restored, which is precisely what Aslan sent the children in to do 
in that novel. See, it is, it is all too possible for believers in our midst, for us, for me, to become so enchanted and ensnared by sin that I can't, I can't get out. It might be a man who is developing an affair with a secretary or a co-worker. He's being lured, he's being enchanted, he's being, he's being tempted by the intoxicating aroma of excitement and mystery and that sexual tension that's been missing from his marriage. And now, once he's underneath the enchantment of sin, he can no longer see the reality of the situation. All he sees is the excitement. All he sees is what the enchantment allows him to see. What he doesn't see is that he's wrecking his marriage, he's wrecking his, his family, and quite possibly, he is walking away from his faith, if I'm reading Galatians 5.21 rightly. Why? All for a fling that he will undoubtedly look back upon in years to come with irrevocable regret. This brother needs to be awakened from the spell of sin. Needs to be confronted in his trespass. Need to be called upon to repent and then restored in a spirit of gentleness. Who's, who among us is going to do that? The one who loves. It might be a woman, a mother, who has fallen prey to that growing trend of mothers who are using alcohol to cope with the stress of raising small children. What began with a glass of wine at nap time, so-called mommy juice, has now grown to several glasses throughout the course of the day. Before her habit becomes an addiction, before her alcohol-induced drowsiness causes her to fall asleep with a toddler in the tub or while a four-year-old walks out the front door. Before she has to stumble awake at three o'clock to get behind the wheel and go pick up her third grader from school. She needs a sister in Christ to confront her, to rescue her, to love her. See, this is what love does. This is what holiness is. See, you thought holiness was wearing the right things and not wearing the wrong things. Listening to the right things and not listening to the wrong things. That may be a part of it. But at its core, holiness is loving somebody more than I love myself. And when I love somebody else more than I love myself, this is what happens. Holiness is not spending my days alone on a desert pillar 60 feet in the air in some ecstatic state, hallucinating from heat stroke or sleep deprivation. Holiness is loving my brother enough to awaken him from the spell of sin and to rescue him from the evil enchantment. Look again at verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, you who are walking by the Spirit. See, walking by the Spirit necessitates that I'm living life in a community of believers, some of who, at some point or another, are going to need my help, and I'm going to need theirs. The fruit of the Spirit grow for the benefit of the body of Christ. 
so that we are wise and discerning enough to recognize when a brother or sister are in danger. So that we are courageous and loving enough to confront him in that danger. So that we are compassionate and gentle enough to restore him in such a way that he does not become humiliated and defeated and shamed for his sin, but rather loved and humbled and strengthened to overcome it. So would to God that we at First Baptist Nixa would be a loving church that does not ignore sin and does not leave brothers and sisters to perish under its enchanting spell with the pitiful and pathetic excuse that it's none of my business and I don't want to judge. And would to God that we would be a merciful church that when a brother or sister is ensnared, we don't look upon them with disdain and condemn and shame them for not measuring up, but rather reach out to them and embrace them with the arms of grace. See, a church that ignores sin in its midst is like a hospital that ignores cancer. We must be willing to confront and if necessary to discipline and if necessary to cut off for the good of the soul that is ensnared. See, we, we have no good news for unrepentant sinners. Only the terrifying promise of judgment and a fire that cannot be quenched. But we have the best news in all of the world for sinners. Who will recognize their sin and turn from their sin and, and return to Christ. And part of that process happening is the church gathering around them in their time of need and reaching out to them in love. And how do you know but that the brother or sister that you know of right now ensnared in sin wouldn't repent if you were to love them enough, be courageous enough to confront them and gentle enough to restore them. Often the spell of sin is broken by the violent act of love that we call confrontation. They find out, I, I, I've been caught. And after they get over the shock, often what will happen is they'll turn around and they'll say, thank God that I was caught because it's better to repent and live than to remain hardened and perish but once the spell is broken then we must restore the erring and repentant brother paul uses a word here that refers to putting right returning to its former condition it's a medical term that's used for setting a broken bone setting a dislocated joint which provides the perfect metaphor for the loving restoration of a brother or sister in Christ who is broken and out of joint because of sin. It also explains why it's so vital, why, why Paul goes to the trouble of saying that this restoration, it doesn't take place with harshness, it takes place with gentleness. Can you imagine a doctor who comes in to fix a broken bone It's just like, I can fix that. Setting a broken bone is painful, but if it's done gently with, with controlled, purposeful strength, the process will be easier, the break will heal faster, and long-term damage can be minimized. So number two, I would say, by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, may we, may we be a church of courageous, 
yet gentle healers. Spiritual surgeons with spines of steel and hands of velvet. Number three. To walk by the Spirit means to walk in love, and to walk in love means to bear one another's burdens. Paul says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now the structure, the flow of this passage suggests that verse 2 is a summary of the specific instruction that he gave in verse 1. In other words, restoring one another when we sin is but one way of bearing one another's burdens. There are other ways to express love through the ministry of burden bearing. For instance, love bears one another's physical burdens. Reminded of 1 John 3.17, listen. But whoever has the world's goods, yet sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Which is a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is it doesn't. Holiness, then, is love, and love is sharing with brothers and sisters when they have need. Righteousness is entering into one another's poverty, entering into one another's job loss, entering into one another's financial struggles, and sharing the load, even at great and sacrificial cost to myself. Because love that in the end does not cost us anything is not love. Love is giving an extra vehicle of mine to a brother whose car is broken down so that he can get to work on time. Love is quietly making sure that a family in the church that is struggling because they're not making ends meet and the job's not paying enough and hours have been cut, making sure that they have food on their table or quietly paying their utility bills until they can get back on their feet. That's what love does. Love also shares one another's emotional burdens. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Holiness is entering into one another's grief when they've just lost a parent or a child. Righteousness is walking through a painful and unforeseen divorce with someone whose husband has just left her. Love is adopting a recently widowed man or a recently widowed woman and inviting them over for family dinners and thereby walking with them and shoulder to shoulder bearing the load of grief and fighting the battle against loneliness. Love bears one another's spiritual burdens. This can take the form, as we talked about up in verse 1, of confronting and restoring someone who's ensnared in sin. Or it could take the form of giving time and counsel to the brother or sister who comes to you in the midst of a spiritual desert, in the midst of a spiritual depression, in the midst of doubt and despair, and they're crying out like the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Some of you have been there. And how much does it mean to have someone come alongside and say, I've been there too. The desert doesn't last forever. God will not forsake you. He will not leave you. He will bring the healing water in due time. But until He does, let me walk with you. Holiness is holding a brother accountable. Helping him to put to death the sin of lust by regularly asking him, Hey man, what have you been watching on TV? 
Where you've been heading in the internet. Love is listening to a sister's confession when she pours out her heart to you and praying for her that she may be healed, James 5.16, and then not turning around and sharing her struggle with somebody else whose business it is none of. Love is fulfilling the ministry of burden bearing. But watch this. In order for us to be a burden bearing church, we also have to be a burden sharing church, which often will take far more courage than bearing of the burden. It takes vulnerability, and vulnerability is scary. But if we're serious about putting to death sin, if we're serious about walking in the light, if we're serious about pursuing holiness, if we're serious about being a family of believers, the body of Christ, then we need to be both a burden-bearing and a burden-sharing people. Well, Paul concludes this passage with a warning. It's a warning against a sin which lurks in the shadows and threatens to enter in through the back door and ensnare us when we give ourselves to the ministry of burden bearing. That sin is pride. The warning first appeared at the end of verse 1, where Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Paul then deals with pride explicitly in verses 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. All right, let's take the warning of verse 1 first. Where does the danger of pride arise when we're about the ministry of confronting and restoring brothers who are ensnared in sin. Well, I think, I think the danger can be seen in, in the way we look at that person, the way we look at that brother. We could, on the one hand, look at him. Let's take, let's take the man who's ensnared in adultery. And, and we could think of them, and I can't believe that guy's so stupid. I can't believe he would throw away his family and his marriage for This fling. How could he be so weak? How could he be so sinful? How could he be so damaging? Well, that's one way to look at it. Wouldn't suggest it. On the other hand, we could look at that person and say, Oh, how deceitful is the enchantment of sin. Oh, how alluring is iniquity. Oh, how delightful it looks to the person who's in the midst of the temptation such that they can't see beyond it. I better attend to my own heart lest I fall into the very same thing. There's all the difference in the world between addressing a brother who is caught in sin from the high ground of moral superiority or humbly identifying with him in his sin and in his temptation from this sort of camaraderie of we've been there, we share the same flesh, we share the same struggles, we bear the same burdens. Ever aware of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 when he says, therefore let 
Him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. See, we should be able to look upon brothers and sisters who have been ensnared in sin and feel a deep sense of pity and a deep sense of identification which says, there but for the grace of God go I. And then roll up the sleeves, enter into their sin and brokenness, and rescue them from it by the power of the Spirit. I think this is also the sense of verses 3 through 5. See, burden bearing is a tricky business because it carries with it the great temptation to pride. There's the temptation to stand up on my moral high ground and think of the brother who's just lost his job and, and think. Of course, we would never say this, right? Think, well, if he just worked harder, you know, like me, he wouldn't have lost his job. Or to look at the woman whose husband has just left, say, well, she's just a better wife. Like me, her husband wouldn't have left. Or to, to look upon the person who's struggling with doubts and is wrestling with assurance and saying, well, if they only had more faith, like me, they wouldn't be wrestling like this. In other words, there's so often the danger of thinking that the reason why they're in the situation and you're not has anything whatsoever to do with us. And not with the restraining and persevering grace of God. They're there and I'm here because I'm good and they're not. It's in the face of such man-exalting, soul-destroying pride that Paul says what he does in verse 3. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Nothing. Put that on your resume. Nothing. Nothing apart from Christ, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing apart from grace. See, there's no room for pride within the family of God because we all got in in the same way. And listen, and we all stay in in the same way by sheer and sovereign grace. So Paul writes to the Corinthians again, who had a little bit of trouble with this sort of thing. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it, but rather earned it? The antidote to pride is to remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, to give an account of what we have done with the gifts we've been given. This is the thrust of verses 4 and 5. See, it prevents us Bearing in mind that I will, I will carry my own load before the judgment of Christ to give an account of what I've done with what he's given me. That, that prevents me from taking a perverse sense of pride in another's burden. Remembering that I'm not going to stand before God compared to them. I'm not going to stand before God compared to anybody. Except a perfect standard. Martin Luther wrote this. He says, a faithful sexton, now we don't use the word sexton because we're not Anglican, but a faithful sexton, a sexton is uh, a person whose job, he was an employee of the church, and his job was to take care of the buildings and the grounds of the church. That was his job. An officer of the church who maintained buildings and grounds. And Luther says that a faithful sexton is no less pleasing to God with his gift than a 
preacher of the word is with his. For they both serve God in the same faith and by the same spirit. In other words, what he's saying is, the sexton, the building and grounds man, he will give an account before God for how he has maintained the building and the grounds. And the preacher of the word will give an account to God for how we have rightly divided or wrongly divided the word of truth. But the preacher's not going to give an account for the buildings, and the sexton's not going to give an account for the preaching. We all are dealing with God as stewards of the manifold grace that he's given us and, and doing with That grace, what he commands. Therefore, we should fulfill our own duty to the best of our own giftings to the glory of God. And then, he says, we'll have something in which to glory. Not in a sinful way, not in a I did this sort of way, in in an Apostle Paul sort of way. I labored more than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. We will have reason to glory because our praise then will not be from man, but it will be from God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, which is the only praise that matters. So the encouragement of the word of God to us today is to walk by the Spirit, which is defined by or as walking in grace-wrought, faith-activated, Spirit-empowered love for one another thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. This is the very purpose for which Christ died. He died to make us a holy people. Romans 8, 4, Christ died so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the power of the flesh, but walk according to the power of the Spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law might actually be fulfilled in this church. What law? The law of Christ. What law is that? A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you love one another. This law of love is fulfilled when we... Walk with one another in humility, considering one another is more important than ourselves. This law of love is fulfilled when we guard one another's souls and and restore one another when we become ensnared in sin. This law of love is fulfilled when we come alongside and bear one another's physical or emotional or spiritual burdens. So the call of God to First Baptist Nixa this morning is that we would be a church filled with humble, burden-sharing, burden-bearing believers. And the promise stands. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. As you have your head bowed, taking a moment of silence, to respond to the word. We are believers here at First Baptist Nixa. But if our faith is a true faith, then we're also doers here at First Baptist Nixa. And so as you take a moment of meditative silence, I want to ask you a series of questions. And before you and the Spirit of God, I want you to answer them.
Question number one. Am I ensnared by the sin of pride? Do I consider other members of this church to be more important than me? Or do I demand my own way, my way or the highway, with regard to little things, big things, things in between? Does pride need to be put to death in my heart this morning by the power of the Spirit? Question number two. Do I right now know of a brother or sister in Christ who is ensnared by sin? What does love do? Question number three. Do I know of a brother or sister here at First Baptist Nixa who's carrying a burden? Maybe physical, material, financial. Maybe emotional, grief, loss, depression, pain. Maybe spiritual. Doubt, fear, sin. I want you to take just a moment and I want you to pray in those three categories. I want you to pray that God would help you to put to death sin and to cause you to walk in humility. If a name popped to your mind, someone you know is ensnared, they're under the spell. Before you and the Lord, I want you to pray for the courage and the strength and the gentleness to confront and restore. And before the Lord, I want you to commit to do it. Under question number three, if the Lord by his spirit brought to mind somebody who is bearing a burden, you don't have to wait for a feeling. God has just called you in Galatians 6 2 to help him bear that. Ask the Lord for strength and love to do so, for the patience that it takes to walk with someone through a long road of burden-bearing. If this was easy, it wouldn't require the power of the third person of the Trinity to fulfill it. But God will give you the power for what He commands. So ask Him for it. Believe that He will. And then go and be a doer of the word. Today, this morning, this afternoon, this week, be a doer of the word, a burden bearer. 
and maybe even a burden sharer. And perhaps by God's grace, there has been somebody here this morning whom God has awakened by His Spirit. And you've come to faith this morning. This wasn't focused upon sin and death of Christ and the cross and resurrection so much, but it's about Jesus. And maybe the word came with power this morning and you've been born again. Maybe faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. To you I close by giving you this command. If you would be saved, you must repent of your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. And call upon his name. Pray to him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to give you his spirit and make you new. And I promise you, beloved, Romans 10, 13, on the authority of the infallible word of God, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, I pray that you would do your work in the midst of your people. Ask this in Jesus' name. You stand to your feet. We're going to continue in a time of meditation and worship.